abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan, and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. I'm standing on a beach. The Mediterranean Sea is wide open. I look towards the west. The place in which I'm standing at is serene. The last hours of a summer's day, people are jogging on the beach. Kids are splashing in the water. Lovers gaze into the sunset. Up until the creation of the Suez Canal in the mid-19th century, the only way in and out of it was through the Straits of Gibraltar, and the Mediterranean could have been considered as a giant bathtub. It is where Europe, Asia and Africa all meet. And as such, it saw numerous nations, peoples, tribes, clans, all coming and going, all using it for one thing or another. Be it to transfer goods and people, to wage war on neighboring countries and settlements for recreation purposes, or to harvest the many food items and creatures that live in it. Throughout the ages, it defined nations and their common narratives. All I have to say is Greece, and I am most certain you have an image of a rugged island in your mind and hear verses from Homer's Iliad. Or I might mention the Phoenicians of Carthage, and one immediately knows what an enormous threat they pose, and thus Carthage must be destroyed. Dubbed by the Romans, who reigned over its entire coastline, Mare Nostrum, literally R.C., Today, along the shores of the Mediterranean, on its 3,000-plus islands, there are more than 20 countries. The way in which we humans decided to divide ourselves into nations, countries, belief systems, and so forth, usually meets nature's sheer oblivion. Having said that, the Mediterranean is a key player in dealing with challenges we humans face. In recent years, more than in any other time since the second half of the 20th century, people from countries that face changing climate, political unrest and full-blown wars are fleeing their homes, communities and lands, seeking refuge. People from Africa and the Middle East make their way to safety in Europe through traffic routes in the Mediterranean. People from countries far away from the shores of the Mediterranean, such as Afghanistan, Ivory Coast and Somalia, as well as people from coastal countries such as Tunisia, Algeria and Syria, all used the sea in their voyage. The numbers are dizzying. If throughout the entirety of 2010, the total number of refugees and migrants to Europe arriving by sea was 9,700 people, it increased to hundreds of thousands of people each year, and by 2015 the Mediterranean saw more than one million human beings making their way through treacherous waters during a single year. Put plainly, 
The total annual amount of 2010 was recorded every three and a half days on average during the most traffic-intensive year to date. The numbers have dropped dramatically since, and yet hundreds of thousands of people still risk their lives in almost unimaginable ways seeking a better future. According to the numbers the UN Refugee Agency, the UNHCR, publishes, if we take Greece, for example, the first half of 2018 shows that more than a third of those who made it to Greek islands are children, 70% of which are not even 12 years old. 11% of all the children were registered as unaccompanied or separated. Roughly 35% of those who survived the rough journey are men between the ages 18 and 39. People over 50 years old are less than 3% of those who landed. And these statistical profiles are quite steady year by year. In the past several years, small islands in the Mediterranean, otherwise rarely known to those without relatives living there, became places of big headlines and even bigger human tragedies. Take, for instance, Lampedusa, a tiny Italian island which is almost closer to North Libya than it is to South Sicily. Its prime location means it is one of the first European points refugees can get to. In October of 2013, in two instances almost a week apart, a total of nearly 500 human beings from Eritrea, Somalia and Ghana lost their lives when the ships they were on capsized less than a hundred kilometers from the island. The deadliest incident to date was in April of 2015, when a ship with 850 passengers drowned. There were only 28 people who survived. The world's seismic shifts are felt by the people of the Mediterranean region with massive force. Every human being needs water and stresses are significant. But with great challenges comes even greater hope. And the person you're about to hear now is full of hope. Constantina Toli is a senior program officer at the Global Water Partnership Mediterranean, GWP Med for short. I met her during the 8th World Water Forum in Brasilia in March of 2018. GWP is an intergovernmental organization. It was established uh, among governments, the UN, World Bank, and other of other actors uh, more than 20 years ago. And it works towards a water secure world. It has been closely associated with IWRM, Integrated Water Resources Management. GWP MED is one of the 13 regions of uh, the Global Water Partnership. We are based in Athens with a number of satellite offices uh, across the region, and uh, we work towards a water-secure Mediterranean. And why 13 regions for the GWP? Because needs are, are not local, and we need to cover for needs in other regions. So we have regions all over the world, mainly focusing on developing countries. But the Mediterranean region is not uniform as well? No. Indeed, it's not. And actually, our region includes both the European Med, Middle East and North Africa. It's definitely not unified. But many of our challenges are shared, you know, among our our countries. In what way? Uh, There is water stress in both in uh, the MENA countries, but also in European countries. For example, uh, Cyprus and Malta have been acknowledged as the 
the two other poorest countries in Europe. So it's not an issue of Middle East and North Africa only, or the scarcity or water aridity. MENA is Middle East, North Africa, I understand? Indeed. Okay. Now, when you say that th- these are European countries, we think about rivers and lush green fields. No, that's not always the case. This is the case in North Europe, but in Southern Europe, it's not like that. I mean, even in Greece or the Greek islands are extremely water-scarce and water-stressed. And of course, Cyprus and Malta, as I said, acknowledge that the water-poorest countries in the European Union are nothing like green water-rich. Let's talk about an island for a moment. You know, I always thought about it. How can you sustain lives when you have only salty water around you? And not always you have aquifers on an island. Can you give me a, an example for a Greek island that is, is water-stressed? Yes, that's my favorite topic, actually. This is how I started with GWP Med. People have always been wise, and this wisdom comes from ancient years. It has always been like that. If you are in a piece of land that is surrounded by, by sea, you need to make sure you know that you find uh, water resources. Usually, it can be the case that you have some fresh water resources, but it could be the case that you don't really. But you have rain. So rainwater harvesting has been a, a practice, and we have evidence, you know, from 2000 BC, that uh, people used to collect rain and use it, you know, for potable uses. So that was their, their source of, of water. And there are still islands, uh, in Greece especially, that they still depend on uh, rainwater harvesting. Really? Indeed. In this day and age? Mm-hmm. Yes, because... Wha- They still don't have water, and it's even worse now, because even if they had some uh, aquifers, they have already abstracted, you know, over-abstracted their water, so their aquifers have been salinized. So many of them return to rainwater harvesting. Many islands have retained their systems. For example, for Levendros Island, has more than 2,000 systems on the island, yes. How many, how many inhabitants? Around 650. So it's more than, it's almost three cisterns per, per, per capita. Yes, because they have cisterns also, you know, for their, for their land, the land that they cultivate. It's the only water that they can get. So they have rain-fed agriculture. So it's a practice that is still contemporary. And in the world of uh, decentralization, how come we don't see more and more small desalination plants around the islands. And, and again, you have many islands in the Mediterranean, not only Greek islands, right? You have some, you have Corsica and uh, Sardinia, which are the biggest, right? Sicily. So Sicily is the biggest one. Okay, mm-hmm. so how come we don't see more and more desalination plants? We do. We do very much so. Actually, we see more and more desalination in the Greek islands because we ha- we're trying to cut down on the water transfers. They were based on water transfers from the mainland, from Athens, which was a very, very costly practice. So now we have small desalination units almost in all islands in Greece. I see a surprise on your face. Yeah, because you were driving water from mainland through pipes? No. Okay. Through tankers. Through tankers. Okay. Yeah, and that, that was a very costly and unsustainable practice. And now we're turning into desalination. So we have small or smallest or in the big, bigger uh, units in the islands. And of course, you know, in the Greek islands, some of them are really small. But of course, we have like the example of Sandorini, which is still a small island. 
but it has something like 10 desalination plants. Because of tourism, Because of uh, uh, Santorini, for example, is an island of uh, 17,000 residents, permanent residents. And how many tourists? Uh, last year, it was more than 1.5 million. So they really, you know, we really, this is among our challenges, that we don't only have to cater for permanent population, we need to cater for all these seasonal peaks. So imagine from 17,000, you know, you need to cater for 1.5 million. Of course, they were not there overnight, but nevertheless, they, they have a capacity which is more than one, 150,000 people per day. So you really need to cater for these people. They need to have water and they need to have proper wastewater management. So let's talk about wastewater then. We see a lot of potential in the region, definitely. And of course, the Israeli example of wastewater use is the one that we have been showcasing and discussing. And also the Muthi example in Spain, that they reuse all their, their, their wastewater and they use it for agricultural purposes. We firmly believe it's a, it's a good practice, as long as you keep the standards and you don't jeopardize people's health, then it's definitely a solution. So why are you talking about it as if it's something that might happen, but not happening already? No, no, no. As an organization, we're really pushing towards that. It's among the solutions, and an organization like us would push for any solution that would provide water and would drive us to, to a water-secure world. So this belongs, for, for us, it belongs into the mix of solutions that we can apply. So we need to, to have water demand management measures. We need to employ desalination when we don't have fresh water resources. But we also need to expand the use of wastewater. Treated wastewater. Treated wastewater, of course. But you say we as an organization push for that. I assume that on the other side of the uh, table, you meet uh, governments, countries, other stakeholders that uh, don't really like this idea because... No, no, no. There's a growing consensus. And this is the good, the positive message, that there's a growing consensus that wastewater reuse is among this, the solutions that should be applied, especially in regions like ours, the Mediterranean. There is a clear need. We don't have enough resources, and there is also a clear understanding that we don't need, you know, the standards of potable water for agriculture, for example. So why not use this resource? We shouldn't only be talking about freshwater resources. We know we're, we're talking about water resources, and this is a resource, and it's a critical resource. So we cannot just waste it. Let's talk a bit about climate. It's getting hotter and hotter. It's the first day of spring, or the second day of spring in the Northern Hemisphere. It's been snowing in New York and Washington. It's been hellishly hot in Israel. And Athens in July is not really a place you want to be in. <laughs> it's not only droughts that we see, you know, an increased temperature. The impacts that we're suffering from are, of course, you know, droughts. But it's also all these flash floods. These extreme effects that we really, we see them happen. There was a flash flood in Athens uh, in November, which killed almost 20 people. Athens itself, which was supposed to be one of the places, you know, the Greeks would move to because of the climate. Mm. It had, you know, the perfect Mediterranean mild climate. So nowadays, you don't know what to expect. We had temperatures of like 25 degrees in February. And then we got almost the snow. 
So the, the weather keeps changing. And what we're really worried is that we're not keeping up with the changes. So we really need to change the way we design things, especially when it comes to, to urban water management. We are not prepared to address these challenges yet. Can you? I mean, if you're talking about a flash flood, you need a, an enormous area to be able to harvest all this water. Not really. You don't really go into these massive solutions, but you can implement a number of smaller measures or hopefully bigger. Like? Uh, like stormwater management or impervious pavements, green corridors in the city. So What's what we call... Corridor? What's a green corridor? Green corridor is a place, you know, where you connect, you know, green areas. And uh, it's part of this green-blue infrastructure uh, approach that you implement works or infrastructure works that would actually capture water, especially during the rainy season. And you would collect this water in order to create more green for, for the city. This would eventually, in, in many cities, you know, they start small, like with scattered plants, but the, the eventual plan is to build more green areas and eventually build a green corridor. Which will allow for what? Which would allow, first of all, uh, for a better living environment. Mm-hmm. So... For people that live in big cities, they understand how critical this is. But most importantly, these uh, help us adapt to a raising temperature. So it really helps decrease the temperature, locally at least. It changes the microclimate. And it also prevents flooding. Because the more green that you have, you know, the more absorption of water you have. So it really helps percolation of water into the aquifer. So you don't get all this water, you know, flooding the streets. You get this water, you know, and it's used by the green, you know, and the, the trees to grow. It's a concept that can be used. We have great examples from many cities around the world, you know, from, from Australia that suffers more or less of similar conditions of climate change, you know, very high temperatures in, in summer months and very cold winters. So they're giving us many of these lessons, but also across the world there are these examples of uh, adaptation, you know, in urban water management. In our cities in the Middle, in, in Middle East and North Africa, it's also, they're equally critical because floods are, are also happening in these cities. Mm-hmm. And the fact that cities are increasingly building up, so we have this rapid urbanization and This, if you, if you put this together, you know, with all the challenges that we're having, you know, we have all these migration flows, you know, people are moving. And also because of, of climate change, we have this internal migration. People leave their rural land and they end up in cities. So cities keep expanding. So we should be looking into solutions, you know, that serve not a linear purpose, you know, of only water supply and sanitation, but, you know, we need to close this urban water loop to reuse water, Uh, wastewater, and to harvest all these non-conventional water resources in the city. But not only there, of course. You're talking about the migration pattern of, of humans from Africa into Europe. And I want to talk with you about political stability. There's an episode of Waterline about hydropolitics, water and peace, it is called. And there we examine in depth the Syrian civil war which began because of water and the stresses of the population from rural areas that fled into or moved into cities and the fact that that created this crisis. There were other factors as well, but this is kind of instigated it or it was the first uh, domino brick that kind of 
created this chain reaction. And l- let's talk about Northern Africa. I mean, Tunisia that began the, the Arab Spring is today stable. But look at Libya. Egypt is stable, but there is the Millennium Dam that is being built and might affect the flow of the Nile. So you said that there are three areas within the GWP med, right? Europe and MENA, as you called it. Political stability is different. I mean, you have European countries, you have Israel, you have Northern Africa. I know that I'm throwing a lot of pointers here. I would like you to kind of address it. We're calling the Mediterranean a mosaic of peoples and civilizations, and this is what we are. We used to call it a melting pot, but we're not a melting pot eventually. We're just a mosaic. We're just melting because of the heat. (laughs) We are indeed. But this mosaic creates, you know, this beautiful picture of our region. But if you get into the specifics, yes, there's political unrest in the region. I don't think an organization like us can do something to address this. What we can do is to help the countries manage their water resources in a more efficient and sustainable way. If you don't have a stable government, all the money put into infrastructure is going to waste because if you don't have... I mean, just look at Syria. Crumbled. Who's taking care of sanitation? Who's taking care of uh, fresh water? For the past years, we have been running a project on uh, water governance and financing in the region. And this actually looked into all these perspectives of how to finance water infrastructure, how to create public-private sector partnerships, and most importantly, how to create the enabling environment. We know it's a challenging one. We don't have stable governments. We don't have a stable environment. But nevertheless, what you cannot do is give up. You cannot just say, you know, that this is unstable, I'm not working there. So we're doing our best working with governments, with the current governments or the current officials, the people who now are the world directors in the country, the ministries who are now there in place. They might not be there tomorrow, but it's our mission, you know, to work with whomever is in charge currently and try to create this enabling environment so that there is transparency, there is trust, that they have the regulations in place, they have the institutional capacity in order to enable all these investments in water infrastructure, much needed investments indeed, both in desalination, water supply networks, sanitation networks. So we have been doing this and we, we acknowledge that this has not been ideal, but this is how life is. So you need to address this as you need to address all these incoming challenges, as we said, you know, migration. There is climate change, there is no water, you know, for people in sub-Saharan countries, so they need to leave. They seek a better environment, which is, you know, a human need. You need food, you need a place to to stay, and hopefully, you know, you can also get a better life. But this eventually creates, you know, a new stress, both for the origin countries, which are now, you know, they see, you know, their labor force leaving the countries, For the transit countries and the Mediterranean, you know, Middle East and North Africa are transit mainly countries. Unfortunately, though, and this is remain to be seen, many of these countries that are now receiving these huge migration flows will eventually be the destination countries. How come? 
According to ILO, ILO, this is the International Labor Organization, migration camps have an average life of 40 years. 40 years is a lifetime. It's not transition. So you're talking about Calais, you're talking about, uh, I forgot the name of the Italian island. Not only about the Italian islands, but let's talk about the camps that are already in the region, mm-hmm. in in Middle East. So we need, really need to cater for the people that are positioned there, they're placed there temporarily, let's say, in the migration camps or in the refugee camps. But eventually, you know, we might need to have in mind that this might be a permanent placement. So we need to make sure, you know, that they have proper infrastructure, they have proper services, so they need water, they have need to have access, you know, to, to water supply, safe water, and sanitation, of course. But we also need to be looking into opportunities to have a proper life. So creating, in fact, new cities, new urban creating environments? Creating new cities and creating opportunities for jobs. And this is uh, one of our new themes that we have recently launched within GWP-MET. It's on water employment migration. How to create new jobs in the water sector with all these upcoming and envisaged uh, investments in the water sector. And this would actually help prevent migration because people, if they have enough water, you know, they might as well choose to stay in their land. Not everybody wants to be a migrant. So if you have the conditions, you know, the enabling environment, you know, in your homeland, you don't necessarily want to move out of it. So by creating, by investing, you know, in these, in in water, there is also this opportunity, this social opportunity, you know, an economic opportunity to create jobs. But also for the transit countries, there is so much labor force sitting, you know, in these refugee and migrant camps. Can we train them? Can we maybe have uh, trainings on desalination operation maintenance, on applying water supply networks, on wastewater treatment? There are so many opportunities, also for entrepreneurship. So this can be an opportunity, you know, both for the locals, and this is not only targeting the migrants, of course, you know, this can be an opportunity for people in the region. Most importantly, because another stress in the region is youth unemployment. If you get to have a look at the unemployment rates in the region, they're really striking. Really striking. There's a skills mismatch, first of all. Because apparently, you know, universities and curricula do not really follow the changes, do not really follow the markets. So there's a skills mismatch. We have all the, the more educated you are, the more opportunities you have to be unemployed. You know, there are a number of reports out there and can share these at the unemployment rates and how higher these unemployment rates are when you're educated. So there are opportunities there in order, you know, to educate people, you know, change tertiary education, you know, to keep up with the progress. Desalination is a fact. Do we have a training on desalination at university? I don't know if in in Israel, you know, it's part of your curriculum. Uh, You mean in in a university? Yes. If you go and study engineering, yes, I did liberal arts. No one is. <laughs> <laughs> I did sociology. No one is. <laughs> it's a good thing to hear that, but it's it's not usually part of the curriculum, not even for engineers. Well, they might le- learn the basics of that, but do they know how to operate a system? They might know, you know, more or less the, the types of technologies that uh, are out there. But 
would they know, you know, would they be fit to get a job there? If you talk to the companies, you know, that develop desalination technologies and desalination plants, one of the challenges is to find the people and train the people, you know, to work, you know, in operation and maintenance. We're investing, this is our water investments in the region. Why don't we also create these opportunities for jobs? So does the GWP Med invest in schemes and educational schemes as well? Because, you know, I, I, we started this conversation about water and we're talking now about social mobility. We're talking about labor force. We're talking about everything but water. But water is the underlying, obviously, especially in Brasilia. But this, the scope that, you, that you're talking about is far greater than just securing potable water. Water is not an independent factor of our life. Water is needed, you know, to sustain our lives. This is the underlying thing. Especially, you know, with the water challenges. You cannot only see the challenges as challenges, but you also need to see the opportunities. Mm-hmm. There's no challenge without an opportunity. This is what I believe. So these are also our opportunities. And if you, and you cannot also see the water sector, you know, we've been talking about breaking the silos. This has been, you know, among the key words that you will hear around, you know, also in this, in this water forum. Breaking the silos means that we cannot only think, you know, in the water box. Water is connected with everything. It's connected with our life, with our well-being, with economic activities. Can you have economic activities without water? You Not cannot quite. name. <laughs> Not Indeed. Quite. So this is what we don't really understand. And we, the water people and the water organizations, you know, who were, you know, mostly working in our box, the water box. But it has been, there has been a growing consensus that we have to get out of the box. And this is what we're trying to do, because water is so closely linked to life, you know, to social aspects, to economic aspects. As we said, if you don't have water, you know, you're going to leave your homeland, and then you'll be a migrant. And then when you get, you know, to a place, you, you're going to create a new stress there. And especially in a water-stressed region like the Mediterranean, Imagine, you know, the extra stress. I don't think we can overlook that. And we definitely believe, you know, that we should be looking into the opportunities, you know, of linking, you know, other sectors and other opportunities, you know, with the water sector. Let's go back to the mosaic. What would this mosaic look like in five, ten years' time? We hope that in terms of political stability, things will improve. You this hope. is our hope. This is, you put it as a hope, okay? <laughs> this is our hope. We cannot say anything more than that. Mm-hmm. We're not a government. We're not a decision maker. You know, we, we do not affect what is happening in a country or even, you know, in sub-regions. So we can only hope for that. And we work for a water-secure world, which is very critical for our region being so water-stressed, and this is what I said from the very beginning, you know, that we're trying to promote a mix of solutions towards sustainability. So let's, you know, let's be optimistic. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, it was a pleasure. Waterline is brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI Media production.